Nobody is beyond redemption. Absolutely nobody is not beyond redemption. There is hope for everybody and that there are multiple paths of recovery. It's really important to note that a life in recovery is so much more than just the abstinence from the drugs or the alcohol. I mean, there's so many contributing factors to addiction. Sometimes it's genetic. Sometimes it's our brain chemistry. Sometimes it's things that we don't have any control over, but we can learn to live with. And when you live a life of recovery, you're truly exploring what is it that triggered that addiction? What is that root cause? Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in as we talk with leaders in our community. April Provost with Ideal Options is with us to educate us about opioid abuse. September is Opioid Awareness Month, and any of us who have driven through Seattle on I-5 see there is a homeless problem, and that has increased due to to opioid abuse. Ideal Options has helped nearly 60,000 people who are working to get their lives back from addiction to opioids and other substances with medication-assisted treatment. April, welcome. We're going to start with her story, and then she's going to educate us a little bit about opioids and why why we want to be aware of what's going on with them. April, welcome. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me on. This is a topic that I'm super passionate about, and I can't wait to share this. So my name is David Provost. My story is a little bit different than what people think of as the traditional addict. I did grow up in a long lineage of alcoholics and addicts, but however, that was pretty socially acceptable. Nobody really thought of it being as an addict unless it led to crime or it led to drinking and driving. It was the socially acceptable thing to do. I grew up thinking that that was acceptable. I had a pretty standard upbringing with a broken home. My mom did the best that she could. She remarried a wonderful man. I had a great time in in high school, but I always felt a little out of place. I always felt that longing, that desire of wanting something. And I, so I kept chasing that feeling. So I met a great guy and we got married and then we bought a house and then we got a dog and then we had a child and we lived that American dream. It was what everyone longs for, right? But there was still that feeling of emptiness and there was still something that I was chasing and I tried to find it in a career and that didn't work out in particular when I got laid off. That kind of left me a little lost and not knowing which direction to go. By that time, my son was in school and I had a lot of free time on my hands and I had an injury happen. I went to the doctor and I was prescribed opiates. I was taking them very consistently. And I soon discovered that, well, yeah, one took the pain away, but two made me feel really good. And I started going through those prescriptions a little faster than I should have. Still didn't think there was anything wrong with that. I was getting them prescribed. I met coworkers at work or other moms, they had some pain pills and they're like, oh, here, are you short a couple? Let me give you a couple. We didn't really think anything of that. It was a prescription. Before you know it, though, it got out of control. And I was doctor shopping, going to multiple doctors. I was getting chronic sinus infections. I was getting prescribed cough syrup that had Vicodin in it. And I was drinking it like somebody drinks a Capri Sun. I was literally sticking a straw in it. It got really out of control. Once I got laid off, though, that's when it really took roots because I didn't have anything else to um, give me that sense of purpose or fulfillment going on in my life. So I really just chased it with the drugs. Pretty soon when I had exhausted all options, somebody's like, oh, hey, I know where you can buy some. And that started kind of the downward spiral for me is when I started buying them on the streets. It got to the point where I was 
lying to my family and being deceptive and stealing from myself. I was literally emptying our savings accounts and sneaking out in the middle of the night, just chasing that feeling. I found that as I was taking these pain pills and I was, as I was increasing my dosage, I was doing all of these horrible things, which led me to want to continue to increase my dosage because I, I was so ashamed of what I was doing, but I didn't want to think about that, right? I just wanted to feel good. I remember the first time I completely ran out and completely ran out of access. And I thought, oh, I have the worst flu ever. I feel horrible. And I had no idea that that's what they called dope sick. It took me a long time to figure out that I was an addict and what that really entailed. By the time I realized how far gone I was, I didn't care anymore. I was so addicted and I was so in love with that feeling of not feeling I just kept going. It led me to some very, very dark places. It just started to disintegrate every relationship that I had. I lost all my most of my family because I probably borrowed money from them and not paid them back. I was being deceptive. My husband at the time didn't know what was going on really because he'd never been around it, but he knew something was wrong and he didn't know how to fix it. So he buried his head in the sand and we kind of started living separate lives. It wasn't until I uh, been introduced to methamphetamine at that point, And I started kind of trying to play around with that because I was up and running and gunning all night long while the husband and the child slept. That's when I was out taking care of my business. So I started hanging around people that were doing all kinds of other illegal substances and it became normal. It was amazing and shocking to me. I lived such a sheltered life. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm around needles and all of these things that most people in, in, quote unquote, normal society would be appalled at, it didn't phase me. I ended up having to wean myself off of opiates because I could no longer afford them. And I was kind of at the bottom of my barrel. And I did that by increasing my methamphetamine use. Before long, I went out of state with a couple of people and we got picked up and I was arrested and spent three months in jail there. It was horrifying because I was served with divorce papers and a restraining order from, um, my ex-husband against me for my son, I was left in jail. And when I got out and finally came home three months later, I was handed my car keys. My car was packed full of my clothes and I was told I needed to leave and I couldn't go back to my home. I was facing a divorce. I had nowhere to go. I had been cut off from my family. Um, I had been shunned by my community and my peers. My son wanted nothing more to do with me and I had nowhere to turn besides the people who did drugs. They took me in and that's where I went. That's when I started the darkest phase of my life. That was four years of utter active addiction and homelessness. I was in such a dark place and I was so devastated and ashamed of myself that at one point I was suicidal. I had a plan for how I was going to kill myself and my thought process, my value on my life was at least my son will collect social security and I'll be in some way supporting him if I'm dead because being alive has no more value to him. I am nothing but a shameful, incompetent, worthless parent. That is how I felt. And I had no one I could reach out to. I didn't know where to go with that. And so I just kept doing more drugs so that I didn't have to feel that. And I didn't have to face those and I didn't have to overcome that. It got so bad that even looking in the mirror, I could not look myself in the eye. I did not ever look myself in the eye for five years. I did not. I didn't like anything that I saw about me. It was a very dirty, dark 
depressing time. Not to say there weren't some times that were quote unquote fun. Obviously, if there was no fun in it, no one would ever do them. That feeling always returned. It was always the joy, any kind of joy or happiness you may have felt was fleeting and was not real. I didn't know who I was. I didn't like who I was becoming and I didn't know how to get out. And it took me a long time and some pretty low places of sleeping in tents and in the winter time and everything is damp and you have no food because you have no way to cook it. You just keep compounding it with more and more substances. I found myself in relationships that turned abusive. There was a lot of violence involved. There was a lot of dirty backdoor deals. There was sex trafficking that I had no idea that existed. My eyes were opened to really the dirtiest underside of society. And it was normal. It blows my mind now how normal it all became and how it didn't even make me raise an eyebrow anymore. And then I started hearing the stories of people and what led them to their addictions. People that were introduced to it at 12, 13, 14 years old that had been using for decades that hadn't no other knowledge of any other kind of life, the amount of trauma that people have gone through, the rapes and the pillaging and uh, the abuse that people face that brought them to where they got to. It was very eye-opening to me because I remember before I really got firmly entrenched in this world, I would look at those homeless people walking down the street and think, those people. I almost dehumanized them in my own way. So going through my active addiction really taught me a whole new level of compassion and understanding. And it really humanized people for me. It doesn't matter how you're brought up. It doesn't matter what societal bracket you come from. Addiction hits everybody and it turns everybody into people that you're not going to recognize. It turns sons and daughters. It turns mothers and fathers, grandparents. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how old you are, what color you are, what race you are, what gender you are, nothing. None of that matters. Addiction can happen to anybody and in any family and in any situation. And we're all just maybe that one wrong choice away from it. My addiction took root because I did not understand and it was not educated and, and it wasn't popularized how addictive opiate pain medication was back then. Nobody talked about it. Nobody knew anything about it. I mean, housewives were doing it and it was acceptable. Oh, I have a headache. I'm going to take a Vicodin. That was normal. Today, we're fortunate enough to have learned from that, but it's really cost us a heavy price. So when I finally found recovery, I used our um, wonderful, wonderful program that we had here in Snohomish County with embedded social workers that worked with the local police departments and sheriff's departments. I made contact with a, with one of those social workers and thank goodness, thank goodness, I was connected with this person because I did not know how to get out of where I was at. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't realize what it took to get into services. I didn't realize there were programs that would help me get into clean and sober housing and help me rebuild my life. These social workers, they would squash warrants. They'd help you with legal problems. They helped me get my license back. They provided the resources, provided I put in the work. So when I put in the work and I, I was at my wit's end and I remember being on my hands and knees and praying, please just give me a sign. If you want me 
to stop living this life. I, I just, I need a way out and I need some help. The police would oftentimes come out into the camps and ask people to move along. We, they couldn't be there and they would connect you with one of those social workers. And we just got to a point where it's like, you know what? That's what I got to do. That's where my recovery journey began. And let me tell you something. It was the best gift I've ever given myself. It was absolutely amazing. That's not to say that it was easy. There were times when I um, second guessed that choice, times where I thought maybe relapse would end up being part of my story, but I persevered. I made the right connections. I put in the work that it took. I followed the suggestions of others, but most importantly, I connected. I re-engaged with society. I found peers. I found support. I found connections. And then I started, the most amazing thing happened is I started to like myself and I started to be able to look myself in the eye when I looked in the mirror. That was a pivotal moment. It took me probably nine months into my recovery before I realized that the negative thoughts that had so consumed me and all the guilt and the shame that had overwhelmed me for so long was slowly starting to fade away and chip away. It's still been an uphill process. I have had multiple years in recovery now, and there are still some times that I get that tinge of, I don't feel worthy, but I now have the tools to cope with that. I now have the support systems in my life that will love me no matter what, and be there to walk with me on this journey and help me through those times. And that's the most important component is, is the connection. When I say that I learned compassion, I can now look at people that are still struggling and I can have that empathy for them and that compassion for them. And I know that whilst most of us made a choice to put that first drug in our system, Many of us didn't understand or fully comprehend where that was going to lead. And once it took root and it took root quick, we didn't have an option any longer. The way that it operates in your brain and the, the chemical imbalances that it creates, it's just so difficult to get out of. And you definitely can't do it alone. You need those wraparound services. You need that community. You need that connection. And so today I I'm an advocate for those that are still struggling with active addiction. And I work for a company called Ideal Option. It is a medically assisted treatment center. We help provide medications that will help folks get through their detox and withdrawal period, as well as sustainability with helping with the cravings, helping to prevent overdose, and just giving people their lives back from a medically assisted treatment position. It's not the cure. You can't just take a pill and that's all there is. You've got recovery. It's so much more than that. And I guess that's the, the biggest message that I have. Number one, nobody is beyond redemption. Absolutely nobody is beyond redemption. There is hope for everybody. And that there are multiple paths of recovery. I think that it's really important to note that a life in recovery is so much more than just the abstinence from the drugs or the alcohol. I mean, there's so many contributing factors to addiction. Sometimes it's genetic. Sometimes it's our brain chemistry. Sometimes it's things that we don't have any control over, but we learn, can learn to live with. And when you live a life of recovery, you're truly exploring what is it that triggered that addiction? What is that root cause? For some people, maybe it's a significant trauma with some PTSD. Maybe it's mental health diagnoses. Maybe it's a physical medical problem. Maybe it's a combination of all of them or some of them. At the end of the day, true recovery addresses what those factors are. The whole idea that a one-size-fits-all approach to recovery 
is just has not served us well. I think that if we use professionals and providers and peers and individuals to tailor a plan to set an addict up for success, that's what's gonna really change our community. So accessibility to the needed resources, the tools, the changes in our responses, our, the connection and relationships, that's what's gonna breed success for recovery. MAT or medically assisted treatment is one of those tools. It's evidence-based, it's proven, I guess what I really want to advocate for is, is the stigmatization that's around MAT and uneducated opinions. That keeps people locked in their addiction. And I know that that was true for me. I'm not trying to convince anyone that everyone needs medications to get clean, but be fully educated and let's not shame each other about how a person chooses their recovery. Can you explain how it works? Medically assisted treatment or MAT is really the recommended treatment modality for people in particular with opioid addiction as well as alcohol. But we'll talk today about opiate. So when we take a medication such as Suboxone, there's also Methadone, um, there's also Naltrexone. So we can kind of get into what each one of those does. But at the end of the day, the hope is, is that we're gonna reduce the cravings of, of the person using. We're going to block the effects of opiates if they are used while they're on the medication. We're going to help prevent and mitigate some of those withdrawal symptoms. And we're going to help restore normal brain function, including memory, concentration, and decision-making and thinking skills. Studies have shown that those with opiate use disorder that are using MAT are significantly less likely to relapse. Those that do relapse are significantly less likely to overdose or have a fatal overdose. Sometimes people need to take meds for the rest of their life. Sometimes it can be a program of a certain duration. It's really dependent on what their use looked like. So maybe somebody who was in it in active addiction for three to four years, they want to get onto medically assisted treatment or suboxone treatment. That person averages maybe anywhere from 18 months to three years of a treatment program where they get stabilized onto a dose, then they maintain that dose, and then they taper off at that dose. There are others that maybe they've been addicted for decades or the majority of their life, and maybe they're going to need this for the rest of their life. I'm okay with that. If they're being productive members of society, then and that's a medication that they need to help them sustain that, why not? Why not? I think that it's really going to be up to the individual and the provider to make that decision together. Buprenorphine is the active ingredient in Suboxone as well as a naloxone. The buprenorphine is a medication that attaches to the receptor as any opioid will, but it only partially activates in the receptors and it eliminates the withdrawals and the cravings and it helps people feel normal, but it does not give them that euphoric feeling and it is not, you're not able to overdose on it. So after a, a level of 16 milligrams, you're no longer absorbing or there's no more receptors attaching in the brain. So it kind of levels off going to mitigate those withdrawal symptoms and it's going to um, mitigate those cravings. And it's just going to help you to be more closer to homeostasis in your brain. So the naloxone is an anti-antagonist opioid blocking medication, and it'll cause withdrawal symptoms if someone tries to abuse the medication. So in a suboxone, it contains, the strips can contain eight milligrams of the buprenorphine and two milligrams of the naloxone. So it's adding that component that will keep you from, say you take 32 milligrams and it's too much for you, that naloxone is going to kind of be in there to mitigate and block the receptors from becoming overloaded with it. That is the preferred medication that we use at Ideal Option 
for opioid use disorder. So April, man, there are so many things come up for me. One is I was one of those people that was very judgmental about medical treatment because I was naive. I didn't know. And so the fact that you have explained to us, what would you say to a family that maybe has somebody on the street? And I get asked that by family members all of the time. I know that we want to save our loved ones. Nobody wants to watch their child, their mother, their spouse. We don't want to see that person suffering. Really, it's got to be the addict's choice to want to choose help. They've got to want it for themselves. We can't get clean for somebody else as much as we may want to. And I know that was really difficult for me in active addiction because I remember why couldn't I get clean for my child? And a lot of people have that stigma around them. Well, you couldn't get clean for your kid. What kind of person are you? They're an addict is what they are. And they need to hit that point in their mind where the pain is so great that there's no other choice left for them. And it's hard to watch from afar, but we love from afar. We never make them feel alone or isolated. Being there and supporting somebody emotionally can also be draining. So we need to be careful that we have clear and concise boundaries as far as acceptable behaviors. We can't let somebody berate us. We can't make them guilt or shame us into helping them. Um, as addicts, we're wonderful manipulators and we know just how to push those buttons. Understanding that, you know, you've got to set those boundaries up and just be clear. I'm not going to give you money. I'm not going to let you come live with me. I cannot have you around me when you're loaded. Can't have your crime around me. I can't be using with me, but I still love you. And I'm still here to support you if, when you're ready to hit, go into recovery. No matter what, you're not going to be alone in that journey. But we kind of do need to take that little bit of a step back and love them from afar, as difficult as that is. The more we provide a safety net and don't allow them to have the consequences to face the challenges, the longer it's going to take for them to hit that rock bottom. And that's the unfortunate truth. It wasn't until all of my options were exhausted and I had nowhere else to go that I finally was able to make that choice. That's how strong these drugs are. I mean, that's the allure, the pull, what it does to your mind. That is how strong they are. People that make it into successful recovery are some of the strongest, most resilient people there are. And sometimes relapse happens. And that's another difficult thing for people to understand. But even with multiple years clean, there are times when I still get that fleeting thought in my mind, wow, I'd really like to use. When I'm feeling tired and I have no energy and, or I'm feeling like I've gained too much weight, that thought of, hey, I could just go use a little bit of meth crosses our minds. That is our addiction speaking to us. And it can get very powerful. And when we get vulnerable, when we have any kind of traumas, any kind of serious situations, yes, that's going to be a fleeting thought. But you know what people don't realize is when as addicts, we learn to expect the worst. So when we're in recovery and we're enjoying the successes and the fruits of our labors, we don't know how to process those sometimes either. And I've seen a lot of people go back out because things were going too well. And it's a self-sabotage. And it's not that they were meaning to, it's just the addiction is that serious. So staying in active recovery program is the single most important thing that that person needs to do. And whether you find that in a church, you find that in a 12-step program, you find it in the 5R recovery group, you find it in the recovery cafes, just find it. 
find peers that have more clean time than you do walk through each day. If you're maybe a parent and you don't know that your child is using, there are lots of indicators that it can be really confusing, especially in adolescence, because in adolescence, we're going to be moody and have those mood swings. And we're going to have a lot of the symptoms just for from going through puberty. But the mood swings, the lying, the disruptive sleep patterns, either sleeping too much or not sleeping at all, missing money, skipping school, skipping work, missing work. It starts out as those little things that will explain away. And at first, maybe some of those excuses are going to sound reasonable and it's hard to catch, but they're going to get more flagrant and they're going to get more often. Once an addiction really takes root, we tend to get sloppy and you're going to find evidence in the way of paraphernalia. You're going to find the little baggies. You're going to find the tinfoil. You're going to find the pipes. You're going to find the needles. You're, you're going to find some indication. I used to use, oh, that's not mine. We took it from so-and-so. We're trying to help so-and-so not be on drugs anymore. They're going to come up with these flagrant, outrageous stories as the addiction progresses. They're just going to get more and more outlandish. They're going to constantly be out of money. They're going to constantly be broke. They're probably not going to be eating as consistently. They're going to start to look sunken in and sullen and dark circles and bags. There's going to be a loss of personal hygiene. There's going to be a loss of home hygiene. Those things are going to kind of fall to the wayside. They're going to start missing important events. They're going to start isolating or being around other people who are using. They're not going to want to be around family members that aren't using or somebody that can call them out on what they're doing. So they're going to make up excuses to miss holidays, to miss functions. They're not going to want to be around. And then when it gets really severe, there's going to be open wounds are going to be an indication. Track marks are going to be an indication. The wounds that they have are not going to heal as quickly. They're going to have other medical related issues that they're not willing to take care of. They're going to want to avoid going to the doctor avoid going to the hospital. They're going to pick up on when law enforcement is around. They're always going to be looking for that. They're going to get nervous when they see law enforcement. It's things like that that start crop, cropping up that sometimes go a little unnoticed. As for the fentanyl, I know that that's the big concern for everybody right now. And I get asked all the time, well, how will I know? What does it smell like when somebody's smoking it? And that's a very, very common question. How can I tell if it's what they're smoking on that foil. The traditional heroin kind of had that like almost ammonia vinegary brown sugar smell to it. The fentanyl tends to be chemical, sweet, almost like antifreeze smell to it when it's being smoked. It has very lingering chemical traces to it. It's going to be pieces of foil with black strips down it, burnt strips down it. The underside is going to be charred. There's usually going to be a straw or some kind of barrel of a pen. There's all kinds of things that it can be used for. There's also the fentanyl is now being smoked in pipes as well. So any of the glass pipes that you find, there is potential for it to be fentanyl. There is fentanyl in almost everything these days, it seems. People who think that they're buying Xanax are actually buying fentanyl. There is fentanyl in um, in the methamphetamine, there's fentanyl in anything that's being sold as an opiate. It's pretty much all going to be fentanyl at this point. And that's the terrifying thing is, is we don't know what we're getting when you're out there and you're using, you don't know what you're getting and you don't know how much you're getting. So while maybe one pill was great for you last time, that same amount could kill you next time or not get, not even get you remotely close to as high. You just never know what the quality control is going to be like in it because it's they're being made in kitchens in household blenders and being pressed in households 
so it's it's just a terrifying time to be alive um, with the fentanyl and I just I really think it's important that people carry Narcan with them doesn't matter who you are I think everybody should have one in their car in their purse on their persons in their businesses um, I think it's super important that we have that on hand because it saves lives. How do people get a hold of that? So anybody who has insurance, whether that be private or state, you can go to your pharmacy without a prescription, get a Narcan kit. I believe you can probably get those once a month from your pharmacist. But I mean, just to have it on hand, there's also, if you go on to um, do Google searches for it, there are websites that will send it to you in the state where you can get it sent to you as a prescription for free. There are trainings that are set up throughout the counties and um, and various agencies. So if you go online and look up, you know, Narcan trainings, if you sign up for one of those free trainings, you get a kit given to you. If you go to the resource and vendor fairs for mental health and addiction that pop up all over the place, they usually have some somebody there giving away also. Contact your local health district for your county they will be able to put you in touch with resources for it as well. Well, April, this has been so amazing and we're out of time and I have so many questions. So I'm hoping maybe in a month or so you can come back. And I think, you know, parents uh, and family members, there are support groups also uh, for family members and for parents that they can look into like Al-Anon or I'm sure there's other ones um, that I don't even know about. But if somebody wants to reach out to you, they heard your story, they heard you and they want to connect, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Absolutely. So you can visit our website, idealoption.net, or you can feel free to email me at aprilprovost at idealoption.net. Or I can leave uh, my phone number with you, Lori, to maybe you can put on the website and people can access the information from there as well. You can also call our 877 number that's on our website at any time and ask to be connected with a peer services outreach specialist in your area. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I know I feel a little smarter and I know that... Um, you really helped me see another side uh, because it's really easy, I think, when we don't know something to just make a judgment. So thank you for the way you explained everything. And, and um, you know, I hope that people will be supportive of their addict if they do choose medically assisted treatment, because maybe that's the only way out for that particular person. Absolutely. Multiple paths of recovery, multiple options at the end of the day. You know, it takes it takes wraparound services. So please be patient with your addicts. They they want if they want the help, they're gonna need your support. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. All right, thank you so much. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference.